If you'll join me in Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, this morning we are going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. The title of our sermon this morning is Sanctified Day by Day, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are knowledge, wisdom, and increasing. One of my favorite musicians in the world is 36-year-old Lang Lang. Now, many of you maybe know who he is, but Lang Lang is a Chinese pianist who is nicknamed the rock star pianist, especially after playing. Uh, He had a show where he played with the heavy metal band Metallica in Beijing in 2017. Lang Lang is undoubtedly one of the greatest piano players who has ever lived, and his unconventional style has drawn a great deal of, uh, of controversy in the classical music world. Believe it or not, it's kind of a stuffy group of people every now and then. But if you've, ever, if you've never heard of Lang Lang, I encourage you to go onto YouTube and look him up, and you can see all kinds of wonderful classical performances. You should see him play with Metallica. It is fantastic. You should see him play with the great jazz pianist Herbie Hancock, also amazing. Lang Lang is superb. <clears throat> But when you listen to how great he is, there's something about him that becomes instantly obvious. That this guy did not learn how to play the piano overnight. It didn't happen in a day. Lang Lang started taking piano lessons when he was three years old. And in his autobiography, he writes that his daily routine was written for him by the time he was five years old by his father. At 5.45 a.m., he would wake up and practice the piano for an hour. He would then go to school at 7 a.m. He went home for lunch and ate for 15 minutes and practiced for 45 minutes. After school, he would come home and he, uh, he would practice for two hours prior to eating dinner. He would eat dinner for 20 minutes and then he would have another two hours of practice afterwards before doing his homework and going to bed. This was at five years old. Eventually, his father quit his job and he moved Lang Lang to the city where he could be with the best instructors that they could find in hopes that he would eventually go to the music conservatory in Beijing. His father, as you might expect by all accounts, was quite abusive and he pushed Lang Lang to the edges. And yet, he said that he would never trade all of those practice hours for anything. He wrote in his book, my advice to a parent is that if their child loves to play the piano, they should be strict. Practicing hard from the age of five is better than practicing really hard from the age of ten. And he said, all my colleagues in classical music have worked this hard, but nobody knows just how hard. Even to this day, most professional classical pianists spend six to eight hours practicing every single day. It's a highly competitive field. There's always new talent trying to take the stage. But but this kind of obsessive commitment... It's not unique to musicians. We see the same thing with professional and Olympic athletes. We see that with academic scholars, with top chefs, whoever it is. The reality is, if you want to be the greatest at what you do in the world, you have to learn. For the musician, they have to learn their notes and the scales and the chords and then how to read the music. And you have to exercise your hands and practice many hours every day to get up your speed and agility and muscle memory and technique and all of these things, it takes time. 
It takes a lot of effort. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes practice is the only thing you don't want to do. And yet, if you're going to be great, you do it anyway. And this reminds me so much of what I think is one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life. And it's an all-encompassing thing that we talk about. But that is our sanctification. And I say sanctification in the Christian life is difficult because... It's where we have to roll up our sleeves a bit and and get busy. It's hard work to be sanctified. Now, let's be clear what we're talking about here. What do we do? How does this work out in the Christian life? We have to keep our categories in the right place, right? We're not talking about our justification. We are justified by faith alone, apart from any works that we can do, apart from anything that we have done. We are justified solely based upon the work of Christ on our behalf and us receiving that work on our behalf by faith in Christ. That cannot change. When we are justified, we are justified forever. However, once we are justified The Lord now requires us to do something. Christians don't grow spiritually through osmosis. We don't walk in greater holiness by taking more afternoon naps. We don't do greater works for the kingdom by spending more hours on Netflix. Naps are great sometimes. Netflix is fantastic. But these things are not the means that the Lord uses that we would grow in holiness, that we would grow in godliness. The Lord has an expectation that His children are spending time learning and growing and becoming more faithful and more holy and more godly. And in, in doing so, that we will exhibit more and more of the fruit of the Spirit and spiritual wisdom, and we would continue to do the good works that God has prepared for us to do beforehand for the good an increase of his kingdom. And that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of effort. That takes a lot of hard work and patience. A lot of doing things sometimes, let's be honest, doing things sometimes that you don't feel like doing. But you do it because you want to grow in Christ and in your knowledge and your understanding and your faithfulness and joy and godliness. We don't always have an immediate desire to read our Bibles or to pray or to read a a good biblical book or to go to a Bible study or even to show up here in the morning. But we know that the daily practice of utilizing the means of grace, the repetition, the going over it again and again and again, that these are the things that the Lord uses to grow us to become more like Christ. So this is, this is where we are this morning. This is all a part of the prayer that Paul and Timothy are offering up for the church in Colossae. And here we're going to be talking about daily sanctification, what we should pray for, and what does that look like? What does it all mean? And Paul brings that up here in this letter. So let's look at the text beginning in verse 9 of Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, 
being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now remember here, In this letter, Paul is responding to the false teaching of Gnosticism, this idea that was very prominent in his day that there was a sort of secret knowledge, a secret spiritual knowledge of God that could be found, that there was this key to this great mystery. And the only way you could find that key and unlock this mystery is to learn from the special Gnostic teachers. Now, all of this is very different from sanctification, the difficult daily work of interacting with and utilizing the means of grace. Not some special, anointed, set-apart person that nobody really has access to, but they have all of the knowledge and wisdom. No, but rather interacting with God Himself through the means that He has provided. So, so Paul very much is going after Gnosticism here. But again, remember we said last week, he's doing this in a very indirect approach but a very obvious approach at countering the false teaching of the Gnostics. So the first thing we see in verses 9 and 10 is that you are being sanctified day by day that you might walk in a way way that is more pleasing to the Lord. Now remember, Paul and Timothy writing this letter to the church at Colossae, and what they know about the church has been repeated to them or told to them by this faithful brother Epaphras. And so here in verse 9, Paul is telling them, we've heard from Epaphras about you what's going on, and we're praying for you. We hear how the church is going. We hear about the members of the church. And by the way, we hear, and you know we've heard because of what I'm saying about this false teaching that is trying to infiltrate the church. And now, again, he's never going to mention this outright, but they would have known what he is talking about. They know what he's saying. And it's sort of, it's sort of, you know, it's not this sort of beating around the bush of does do they know that I know? It's not that kind of conversation. He cuts to the chase. We've heard and we know, and I'm responding to it. Timothy and I, we know everything because your boy Epaphras told us what it was that's going on. So we don't need to beat around the bush. We're going to address these errors, and we're going to do that by presenting and teaching the truth. And so the first big important thing Paul does here is he reminds the church of the work that God is doing in them in their sanctification. And he tells them it's the very thing he's praying for so that they might walk in a manner that is more worthy and more fully pleasing of the Lord. He's praying that God would do the work he does in sanctification. What is that work? He tills our hearts under the ground by his law. He brings us low to the end of ourselves, reminding us of his perfect requirement that we cannot fulfill. And then in being reminded that we cannot fulfill the standard of God's law, he gives us he restores our soul by giving us this promise of the that by faith, as we behold Christ, 
that we can walk in the newness of life because Christ has fulfilled that perfect standard on our behalf. And so our minds are now changed. Our, our lives are being changed. Day by day, we're finding greater help and hope and encouragement, not in ourselves, not in anything we have done or can do, but our greater hope and encouragement is in Christ and His righteousness alone. It's only in Christ, believing in Christ, by faith, in all that He has accomplished, that we can stand in His righteousness. And we are fully dependent upon God, that we would be declared just, that we would be declared not guilty in the end, because on our own, we stand guilty. On our own, we all stand condemned before a righteous and holy judge. And yet, he's showing them right here that once we are justified, once we are given new hearts, once we are made to be new creations, the law of God, it now works for us. Again, not as the standard we're required to uphold that we would be justified, because Christ has done that for us. But it is a standard that we can look to and live by, and we have been made able to live by. Not perfectly, and yet, without obligation to sin like we once had. And so Paul's prayer is that they would be increasing. Two things he mentions here. One is the knowledge of God's will, and the, the other is spiritual wisdom and understanding. The second thing proceeds from the first. So the first thing he mentions is the knowledge of God's will. Now again, this is in direct opposition to what the Gnostics were teaching. Remember, they were after this supposed secret knowledge. A secret mystery that only the super spiritual elite could know. But here is Paul writing to them and expressing in prayer that the desire for him would be that they would have a deep, decisive knowledge of God, a personal knowledge of God's will. This is no secret. And God hasn't hidden anything from us of what he requires of us. He has made it known. And that's such a gracious gift from God, isn't it? He very easily could have made us and left us with the law written on our hearts, condemned, trying to figure it all out on our own. And we know, of course, that that is not possible apart from the preaching of the gospel. We have God's Word, and God's Word gives us all that we need, Peter tells us, for life and godliness. We don't need secret knowledge. We need biblical knowledge. And, and so having this knowledge of God's will through God's Word leads to the second part, to spiritual wisdom and understanding. It leads to us being more spiritually minded, to us having within us the mind of Christ, having renewed minds in Christ. This is similar language to what Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that by testing we may be, be able to discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is exactly why we're here this morning, isn't it? Not the only reason, but it is the main reason. It's the ministry of the Word of God. It is so vitally important that Christians place their lives under the preaching of God's Word. It is explained to us. It is worked out in detail for us when it is done well. And in so doing, we receive it. 
and it is applied to our minds, it reshapes our thinking, it penetrates our consciousness, and it engages in the intense activity of whole person transformation so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to the Lord. And this is our first and greatest need, isn't it? We talk often of the inseparable relationship between the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not work apart from the Word of God. He just doesn't. And likewise, the Word of God is of no effect unless the work of the Holy Spirit is present. The two cannot be detached from one another. And if we want to grow as Christians, we desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And if we're going to walk in a way that is pleasing to God, this is our only hope. And so knowing that I need the Holy Spirit's work in my life and knowing that the work of the Holy Spirit is inseparable from the Word of God, what does that tell you? It tells you I need, I need to be saturated daily in the Word of God. I need to eat the food that the Word of God delivers day by day that I might be filled up with more of Him, that the Holy Spirit would be working in my life. This is a big thing. Now listen, this may not be the most popular thing I'll ever say, but I believe it's one of the most true things in terms of practical Christianity. There is nothing you do as a believer in this world that will work in you and through you that is more important than receiving the preaching of God's Word. In a day when there's such a heavy emphasis on personal Bible reading. Now, don't get me wrong, that is a good thing, a right thing. Do that. Read your Bible. But this mentality of me and Jesus, it's a popular one, but it's wrong thinking. Me and Jesus is not a biblical concept. We were created and assembled in the church to live as a community of God's people, growing together, so that idea of having Jesus and your Bible, so you don't really need anything else that tells me that Bible you say you have, you don't really understand. And so, we need the preaching of the Word of God more than anything else. It's the most important means that God provides. One of the other things people often will turn to, they'll say, well, I grow the most by, um, by listening to and singing good Christian music. This strange idea that it's Christian music that's really growing them faithfully the most. And I believe that's where we tend to have most of our emotional experiences in our worship. Listen, I, I love the music that we sing. It moves me deeply sometimes. And so this emotional aspect that comes with singing isn't wrong itself. God made us to be emotional creatures. But that's certainly not primarily something we do that is filling us with the knowledge of His will. Others wrongly assume that the Holy Spirit is just sort of going about the world to and fro, doing whatever apart from the Word of God, and they just sort of have these experiences with the Spirit. And they say, well, it's just the work of the Spirit in my life, completely detached from the church and the Word. I can keep going. We, we get the point. For many Christians, and even for some churches, well-meaning as they may be, sermons, preaching has sort of been put on the back burner. It has been reduced. But it is the primary means that God uses to grow His people. It's the one thing 
that if we sit under week by week, and even today with the internet, we can listen to and sit under day by day, as the Bible is being explained to us, the wisdom of God's Word is passing in through our ears and into our hearts, and the Bible is being applied for us. And so we are set on course to start thinking about all of the ways that the Word is working in us and what that means for us in our daily lives. So I hope you're seeing Paul and Timothy are praying for the church because this is something that takes work, right? This isn't something that just happens for us. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes Christians making willful decisions each and every day to take in the Word through all the various means that God provides. And it especially takes the effort of the Christian to gather with the, with the church every Lord's Day to have your heart and your mind prepared and ready and focused on the Word of God to set aside your earthly cares and concerns that you are fully available to be penetrated by the Word of God. So think about that. You know, typically, we, when we pray, we pray for ourselves and others, and so, so doing, we're often so prone to pray for, uh, for physical health or issues of well-being, um, uh, and we, we pray for um, our relationships and, and all of these things, and these are good and right things. But what about a prayer like this? Have you prayed this for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you prayed this for your church, for your pastors, that, that we would all grow in the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What a great prayer. We need that, don't we? Because our flesh is so weak. We are so prone to go our own way and put, put aside the effort that it takes to do this, to tend to other things. So we need those prayers. But we also need to be a big part of the answer to that prayer. We should all be listening to and reading and meditating upon the Word of God to be renewed each and every day, to be made more and more able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So what does that look like? Second thing Paul shows us this morning, second part of verse 10 through verse 12, your sanctification brings about greater works, power, and thanksgiving. Paul gives really three statements here of what it means when he writes that his prayer is for the church to walk in this manner. This again is the result of sanctification. Now there are different kinds of sanctification that we can talk about. This morning I'm really talking about what we call progressive sanctification. The kind of sanctification that is happening each and every day as we walk with Christ, we become more like Christ, we walk in greater holiness and godliness. It's a cumulative thing. And so we understand, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, that the Christian life is full of ups and downs. It ebbs and flows. And so as we, as we think about this, we need to keep that in mind, and I'll address that a bit later. But Hebrew people really saw a, they saw a connection between knowing something and the conduct of our lives. They really believe that if you knew something, it would be evident because you were working that something out. You couldn't know something and not do it, or else you didn't truly know it. The experience was as much a part of just having the information. And so this is how Paul really goes about this here. The first thing he shows us is that bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, that this is a part of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So for the Christian who's making progress, they are bearing fruit. 
This is intended by Paul to communicate something that is both present and continuous throughout life. It should be constant. It is this ongoing reality. And, and if we're honest about this, the times where this goes, most, where this goes poorly, if you do an assessment, where is it where I see times in my life where I'm not bearing much fruit or I'm not doing many good works in the name of Christ? More than likely, those are the same times in conjunction with when you're not being very much saturated in the Word of God, right? That these things go together, that my intake of God's Word, that it's doing its work in my life, the overflow of that is that I'm doing, I'm bearing fruit, I'm increasing in the knowledge of God's will, and as a result, I'm doing every good work that God has called me to. So we have this intimate connection between hearing and knowing and doing. We can't overlook the, the fact that these are the efforts that take place through the believer, but it is poured into us by the Word of God. And so notice also that Paul writes again here about knowledge. He's already done that once, but again, he mentions that we are increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, remember, Paul is combating the Gnostic idea. And so he's wanting to make clear that you can know God intimately. And not just know Him, but, but learn more and more about Him. In fact, he says this is what it means to be a Christian that is growing, that you're learning more and more about God. And I want to be clear about something here. This really cuts against the grain of this idea that we can just become Christians and be okay sort of riding out our days knowing nothing else about God except for a few basic things. Right? You, you often hear people say things like, you know, theological study or doctrinal understanding or doctrinal precision, these things are really a useless or unnecessary pursuit. You can do that at seminary or whatever if you want to, but for the everyday Christian, that's just not necessary. That's not important. But Paul tells us something completely different here, doesn't he? If we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we're going to be increasing in the knowledge of God. And again, Paul sees all of this working together. The more you serve the Lord, the more knowledge of the Lord that you have, the more knowledge you have, the more you want to serve Him. And so it's onward and upward, working together. Now, I know, I know it sounds like maybe I'm saying that all of this is an easy thing. But I, I get it. This isn't an easy thing. There, there is, there's a lot of challenge here. But I know it's like saying the goal of basketball is to shoot the ball into the hoop and get as many points as possible. Well, great. That sounds easy, Right? The goal of golf is to hit the ball down the fairway and to put it into the hole and get as few strokes as possible. Easy. The goal of tennis, well, the goal of tennis actually is to just learn how to keep score. That's a challenge in itself. Nobody really knows what that means. But it sounds like what we're saying here is all of this is simple. The goal is just intake the Bible and increase in godliness as you work it out and, and you become more holy like Christ. I get it. It's not that simple. And yet, in essence, it is that simple, isn't it? It is that simple. And yet, as a Christian, we know because of our humanity, because of our frailty, because we live in a broken world as broken people in the flesh, we ebb and flow, right? We need these categories of our union with Christ and our communion with Christ to be solidly implanted in our minds. 
that when I am justified, I am united with Christ. I am, I am His and He is mine and nobody can take that away. There is no taking away our union with Christ. It is forever. But our communion, our communion with God, it ebbs and flows. Some days we commune with God in greater ways than others. As we are reading or, or listening to His Word and it is influencing us and changing us and our hearts are, are, being, are being tilled up and, and turned over by the Word of God, we may experience a greater, uh, a, a greater sense of God's nearness to us. And yet there are other days where I'm sure we've all had, we, we feel distant from God. We, we pray like, like we see in the Psalms, like, David, why, O oh Lord, have you abandoned me? Why do you feel so far away from me? And what are we talking about here? We're talking about the, the experience of the Christian life in our communion with God. But you know who that's dependent upon? Whether or not you're communing with God is not primarily dependent upon God. God is there. And God is continually showing Himself to you. He's calling you to Himself. Where do we meet with God? We meet with God in His Word as the Spirit comes and works in us. And so if we are not utilizing the means of grace, we cannot have any expectation of any kind of sweet and lasting communion with God. We may have union with Christ, but do we want our our union to be an inch deep and a mile wide? Or do we want depth? Do we want strength? Do we want it to be sturdy? You see, sanctification is is about our communion with God. And the more I commune with God, the more sanctified I become, and the more I'm walking in a manner worthy of my calling as a Christian. And so these things are working in conjunction with one another, and they're bringing us upward to the great end of the Christian life. The great end of our lives is not going to heaven. The greatest end of the Christian life is communing unhindered with our God. That forever and ever, when this life ends, that we will behold our God face to face in all of His glory, and that will never end. That's the great end of the Christian life. Now, notice what else Paul is praying that is pleasing to God. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I love Paul's language here. He says, power according to his might, endurance, and patience. Now, this language he's using, this is kind of wartime language, isn't it? It's, it's, it's like sporting language. There's some grit to these words. He's praying for this steady supply of power. Isn't that great? The Lord never leaves us to manage all of the affairs of our life on our own. He watches over us. He lifts us up when we fall and when we call on Him. He provides us the strength that is needed to accomplish every task that He has called us to fulfill in this life. Do you need courage to step out in faith and do something you have, uh, you have kept yourself from doing because of fear? He will provide the strength for you. Do you need thicker skin to bear the challenges of this world? He will provide that for you. Do you need to be able to concentrate more on the Word of God? Maybe even in this very moment, instead of daydreaming about that delicious pork tenderloin you're going to have for lunch. 
He will provide the focus. This is this power that he's talking about here. The bottom line is if you're seeking to live a life and in a manner pleasing to the Lord, he will strengthen you with all of the necessary power to do so. So out of his might to help you endure with patience and with great joy. You know, I had, this, I had this thought yesterday. I was thinking about this text, and I was thinking through what Paul was saying here and how incredibly freeing all of this is for the Christian, right? This is true freedom because what this means is that if I'm being filled up with the Word of God and I'm striving with a desire to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, I have all that I need to be able to go out into this world confidently and to live and to enjoy all of the wonderful gifts that God has given me without this great fear that I'm going to mess it all up. I don't need to create arbitrary laws and rules and build fences around sin so that I don't get anywhere near it. I have all that I need from God to be able to enjoy a plethora of gifts that He has given me without fear. Because as I walk in Christ... As I seek to be faithful, as I'm being filled up with His Word, I don't, I don't have to think that in the midst of all of that, I'm just one tiny step away from messing it all up, so I need to back away from all of it. No, God's sanctifying me. And so I can trust that in His sanctifying me, that I need not think that I'm going to screw it all up. He's there. He's providing the power. He's providing the wisdom. He's providing the understanding. He's providing everything that I need for the journey so I don't have to do that in fear. I can do that in confidence. I can do that in strength. I can do that with assurance. I can do that with absolute joy. It's a blessing, brothers and sisters. When the great Sir Winston Churchill was near the end of his public service as prime minister, in England, he was invited to speak at his alma mater, a boys' school called Harrow, to address all of the students there. And when it was his turn, he got up to the podium. He was this small, rotund, very boisterous man. And he stood at the podium, and everyone was silent to hear what he said, because not only was, was he considered a great man, he was also quite the wordsmith. He always had something witty to say. So he gets up, and he stands in front of all these young men, and he says this. He says, young gentlemen, never give up. Never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never. And then he turned around and he sat down and that was his speech. Short and sweet. But if you think about it, from who it's coming from and to whom he's saying it to, that's a very powerful thing, isn't it? And this is exactly the kind of thing that Paul is telling us right here. Never give up. Keep pressing in. Keep Keep pushing on in the Christian life because the Lord is giving you all that you need as you are making this journey. As we, as we saw recently, many of us, in the Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read that, this journey along this, this difficult, we're not going to say it's not difficult, it is. It's a difficult journey, and yet it is worth every step. It is worth every step, and the Lord is telling us through the Apostle here, never give up. Never quit, never fall back, and the Lord gives you all that you need in order to keep pressing on, even in the darkest days. He gives you endurance, He gives you patience, that you might walk worthy of the Lord. 
Notice, too, that he says, thirdly, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. When we give thanks to God, we're remembering what he has accomplished on our behalf and what he has done for us. Don't you, don't you just love what he says there at the end of verse 12? You are sharing in the inheritance of the saints of light. We are living that as believers right now, and we will live that as a future reality as well. There's this great inheritance of everlasting light that is ours to behold one day as we pass through this life, as we get beyond this world through the stars of heaven to an even greater light of Christ. That's our inheritance, brothers and sisters. Now, how could we not be thankful for that is what Paul is saying here. That's part of it, that we would go through our lives day by day with a great thankfulness. How often do we not do that, though? Think of all that you have. Think of all that you have in this life, especially as an American. Think of how amazing it is, this gift that you have given this life to live Now, I know we have bad days. We all have struggles. We all have trials. We all go through times of suffering and pain and hardship. That is not unique in any part of the human experience. We all have that. I'm not denying a bit of it. This is still the world. But the reality is that in in human history up to this point, in all of this world to this very minute, in terms of physical life in this world, we have it far better than any other people group ever has. And, and do we just glide through our lives oblivious to that? Getting frustrated and throwing stuff because our Wi-Fi isn't fast enough? Or being mad because the, the thing that we ordered at a window that was prepared for us in three minutes, food that you didn't have to hunt for, and you paid a fraction of an hourly wage to get it, and you're mad because it wasn't quite right in the bag they handed to you? Look, I'm not pointing fingers. I am the king of what have become known as first world problems. I get it. We need to be more thankful. And this is what Paul is saying. This is what's pleasing to the Lord. Why? Why? Because of all that God has given to us. Because of all that He has done for us. Are you thankful for that? Do you even know what that is? Paul shows us in our last two verses, your sanctification is possible because the Lord has delivered you from darkness. He says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Is this true of you? Have you been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Christ? From living in a life of darkness and sin and death brought over and given life in Christ. We are being sanctified because of what Christ did first. He delivered us through his effort that we need not stand before God on the merits of our efforts. He redeemed us. And if I'm ever going to be sanctified, I must first be redeemed. You know, we're, we're Redeemer Baptist Church. We recognize that we have a Redeemer. But do we know what that word means? Do we think about what that is? What is redemption? The word's used in various contexts, but in this context, as Paul is, is utilizing it, the idea is one who was enslaved but is now set free by way of a payment that is made on their behalf. But what makes it all the more interesting is that we are twice, we are twice Christ's in a sense. We are created by him, and then we are purchased by him. 
Think of a, a famous painter, maybe. They, they, they're in their studio, and they paint this, this masterpiece, and he finishes it. And, and in the middle of the night, someone breaks into his studio, and he steals the painting and takes it to the art market, and they're going to, they're going to auction it off for at least a million dollars. But the artist, in his mind, this is the greatest thing he's ever created. It was never going to be for sale. And so he went to the art auction, he goes to the auction, and he pays the highest price necessary in order to get it all back. Nobody was going to pay a higher price than him because it was his creation, and he cherished it, and he wanted it all to himself so he would purchase it no matter what the cost was. And it was twice his. He created it, and then he purchased it. And in a similar way, we are twice Christ's. He made us. And he has purchased us with the highest price imaginable. And when this payment was paid, having received us in return, this is what redemption is. We are redeemed. It's the payment of a price. It is a ransom. And the price to be paid was in blood. And the object that was purchased was our souls. And so see, in conjunction with redemption, we also have, Paul tells us, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption would be incomplete without pardon. It's meaningless to be set free, but to still be held liable. It's of no value if the judge says your penalty was paid by someone else, but you're also going to have to pay the consequences. It's unjust. It's double jeopardy. And so forgiveness goes hand in hand with redemption. If we are redeemed, we are forgiven. And without the substitutionary death of Christ, there would be no forgiveness ever. Do you think your sins are too great to be forgiven? Do you think your past is too dark to be wiped away? Do you think your life is too defiled to be restored? Then you are not understanding the power of what God has done in the gospel. You aren't understanding the power of the gospel to set us completely totally, absolutely, 100% free. John Calvin said, God puts our sins out of his remembrance and drowns them in the depths of the sea and moreover receives the payment that was offered him in the person of his only son. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven now and forevermore, and that's it. Penalty paid. If you are in Christ, you will stand before the judge on judgment day and your record will be covered in the blood of Christ so there's nothing to read. Not a single blot of sin will be visible and he will declare before all of the universe that you, my child, are not guilty. Martin Luther popularized the phrase simul justus et peccator, at the same time sinner and justified. That's the life we live here on this earth. We will sin, we will fail, sometimes miserably, but in Christ, you are yet still completely forgiven because you've been redeemed by his blood and for his glory. Does that leave us something to be thankful for? <laughs> Friend, if you are not in Christ, I hope you hear what I'm saying this morning. You may think your life and your sin are pretty awful. I'm gonna agree with you. But I know that because we've all lived that life. But the absolute beauty of what God has done is in Jesus Christ. That all of the sins of the past and all of your sin in the present and all of your sin in the future is paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, God is not a tyrant. 
God is not sitting in heaven waiting, for find, waiting to find a way to judge and condemn and hurt us. No, God is full of mercy. God is full of kindness. God is full of grace. God is full of love. And so the call to you is to look to Christ and live to him who is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way to the Father but through him. But let me ask you something. Knowing all that Christ has accomplished, knowing all that Christ has done to secure the salvation of his people, why would you want to go any other way to the Father? Will you trust in him with all of your life? The Lord will never turn you away, and when you belong to him, your entire life will change, and little by little, the Lord will make you to be more and more like him. And so let us press on together, brothers and sisters, onward and upward.